0: Turn with me this morning, please, now to Psalm 31. Psalm 31. Before we consider this, let's again briefly ask God to help us. Again, we come to you, O God of light pray that you would shine upon us, O God of life, and ask that you would stir us and grant to us your favour. O God of mercy, pray that your goodness may be poured out upon us now. Lord, in our particular needs and circumstances, in our sorrows and struggles as saints, we ask that you would show us more, the greatness of your goodness, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 What do you think about? What takes up the attention of your, your mind over the course of a given day or week? What tends to fill your vision in unguarded moments? What is it that presses in upon you? either always, or often, or at some particular season. Without wanting to distract you, if you weren't here now, and if I hadn't just begun asking you what you're thinking about, and you're thinking about what you're thinking about, what would you be thinking about? What, what, what has your mind been turned from as you come here this morning, and as we begin to hear the word of God as it's read and preached? See, those thoughts can batter us. You may know what it's like to have recurrent fears or recurrent pressures. That time and time again, there are troubles and distresses that rise up in your mind. It's easy for us to succumb to particular pressures, to be dominated by our trials, to have sorrows almost overwhelm us, to have sicknesses and pains so fill our bodies that it's as if we cannot turn our minds anywhere else, to be carrying burdens so painful, facing persecutions or slanders so fearful that it's it's as if nothing else exists. For some of us, They're our own troubles. Some of us make a rod for our own backs by adding to those the troubles of others that aren't even the ones that we should be worried about. You may know or you may even be the person who accumulates the griefs of others, gathering in the the troubles that others are undergoing so that not only your own but, but the sorrows of others swallow you up. We can become obsessed almost with particular things to the point of being overwhelmed. I think it would have been very easy for David to enter in to such an attitude in Psalm 31. Listen to his experience as he begins. In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. I have hated those who regard useless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy, for you have considered my trouble. You have known my soul in adversities and have not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. You've set my feet in a wide place. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief, yes, my soul and my body, for my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. I am a reproach among all my enemies, but especially among my neighbours, and I am repulsive to my acquaintances. Those who see me outside flee from me, I'm forgotten like a dead man, out of mind. I'm like a broken vessel, for I hear the slander of many. Fear is on every side. While they take counsel together against me, they scheme to take away my life. Now, if any man could have said, I'm feeling overwhelmed. (laughs) Psalm 31, verses 1 to 13. If any man might have said, I'm sorry, I just can't get my head above water. I can't look any higher than these griefs and pains and distresses. It might have been this David. This is a catalogue of miseries. This is a litany of pains. This is a man who is being hated for righteousness' sake. So much so, so intense is his experience, that there's even a a pattern or a shadow here of the kind of antagonism and hatred that our Saviour himself had to undergo as he walked on the earth. David feels something that Christ would have felt in its awful perfections. David could perhaps legitimately have said, this is all I can think about. This is all I've got the energy for. And I haven't even really got energy to do anything but to be swallowed up by my sorrows. Notice verse 14. But as for you, as for me rather, I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. Now that has not been absent from the first 13 verses, has it? You notice how he begins, in you, O Lord, I put my trust. But there's something of that seesaw experience that you often find in the Psalms where there's that that, but me, but you pattern, as for example in Psalm 22. I am trusting, God is my God, but this is what I am passing through. Here are the deep waters through which I go. And you notice that, that David isn't just trying to take a happy pill. David's not trying to say, actually, I'm going to forget about all those things. That doesn't matter. It's not real. No, David faces the horrors of his experience full on. He does not deny them. He does not ignore them and he is not expected to. Rather, he brings them before his God. He lays them out before the God in whom he trusts. And at what seems to be the lowest point in the psalm, they're taking counsel against me. They scheme to take away my life. People want to kill me. They they want to see me trampled into the dust and blotted out from from the earth. What are you going to do then, David? Where are you going to turn? But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. That's what we just sang. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me for your mercy's sake. Do not let me be ashamed, O Lord, for I have called upon you. Let the wicked be ashamed. Let them be silent in the grave. Let the lying lips be put to silence, which speak insolent things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. In the face of all the miseries and the sufferings that he faces as a child of God in this world. Remember, not just generic miseries, but what he faces as a man seeking to walk righteously and facing the assaults of the enemies of God himself. David comforts himself with a reminder of the justice and the mercy of God, that he might not be ashamed, but the wicked might be brought low, and that the saints, the righteous ones, might know the favour of God. So what is it then upon which David deliberately meditates under such circumstances as these? What does he call to his mind in order that he might have hope, to use language we find elsewhere? Look at verse 19. Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. Brothers and sisters, it is the greatness of the goodness of God that we need to fill our hearts. This is what we need to ponder upon. Consider then, first of all, David's awed meditation, A-W-E-D, a meditation that is full of awe. This is a man who is stunned, who is amazed, and he is stunned by God's bountiful love toward him. How great is your goodness! God's readiness to bless his people, the abundance of his loving kindnesses toward him, stun David. You may, on your holidays or at some point in the past, you may have seen something that stuns you. It might be relatively low-key, or it might be something that is just awe-inspiring, as we say. It might be uh, that corner in the road in the Lake District that opens up into a valley with these layered hills behind and roads and rills running through the middle. and You just think, wow, that is fantastic might be a storm that you've seen rolling across the sea. Or maybe you've seen some mighty monument that men have made and you've you've just been stunned by its grandeur. Maybe you've even stood on the edge of the Grand Canyon or, or some other marvel of God's creation and you've been overwhelmed by its magnitude. David looks with eyes of faith to the magnitude of the goodness of his God and it stuns him. The depth of God's uh, great goodness. It is divine. My friends, when God shows goodness, he does so on a godlike scale. He is a God whose immensity, whose infinity, whose eternity marks his own goodness. There are no depths to it that you can fully plumb. This is an ocean of loving kindness. This beggars our understanding. This is that sense, I cannot see to the depths of it. I cannot reach the heights of it. I cannot understand the breadth of these things. It is beyond my grasp. Oh, the greatness of God's goodness. Remember the design of this. This is what particularly hits home, that this is God delivering his people. This is what David is so thrilled by and so amazed over, that God's goodness is seen in the accomplishment of his salvation, that he will deliver his people, and that ultimately he is doing so in Christ Jesus. You understand, I hope, that when God shows goodness, his goodness is shown in such a way as to bring those who taste his love to the very peak and pinnacle of blessing. That when God showers favour upon us in Christ Jesus, it is that we might be brought to him, might walk with him, might ultimately go to be where he is, conformed to his image and enjoying his smile. Does that stun you? Not just that God is good but that the goodness of God is so great, its manifestation on a divine scale so stunning that it should encompass reaching down to sinners like us, lifting us from the dust heap to seat us with princes, making us to be heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Oh, how great is your goodness, says the man, woman, girl, boy, who begins to see the divine design and the divine The divine depth of God's readiness to bless. We're stunned by its degree. It is complete. There is nothing lacking in what God does to us and for us in Christ Jesus. God's goodness is pure, perfect, entire and whole. Every needful thing for the sinner who calls upon him, for the child of God who trusts in him. Perfect and in perfect measure. Oh, how great is your goodness. You see something that is it, that not incomplete. It doesn't stun you the way a 10,000-piece puzzle stuns you. Who can do that? It stuns you the way the finished work of art stuns you. Look at it. Look at it in all the, the perfections and the glories of the, the colours and the combinations and the composition. That the whole thing as a whole holds together so beautifully, so wonderfully. And then David is stunned by the greatness of God's goodness in its demonstration. For this is not a, a picture that you look at on the wall and say, that's impressive. This is the landscape through which you walk. This is not notional for a child of God. This is not theoretical. This is not... That's great goodness. Would it not be nice if I had some part or portion in it? But this is certain. This is real experience. God has laid it up for those who fear him and prepared it in a sense there seems to be poured or worked out for those who trust him. In him. Look at verse 21. Blessed be the Lord, for he has shown me his marvelous kindness in a strong city. I said, In my haste, I'm cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried out to you. Yes, I was at a point where I almost thought, Is God really there and does God really care? Yes, he is. Yes, he does. His goodness toward me has been great I have to use the language of another psalm I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and I can say blessed is the person who puts their trust in him it's definite it's substantial it's real do you ever consider the greatness of God's goodness do you set it against the sorrows and struggles of a child of God in this fallen world? When your soul is overwhelmed within you, do you ask God to lead you to the rock that is higher than you are, to show you again the depths of divine goodness, the design of divine goodness, the degree of it and the demonstration of it in his beloved son, Jesus Christ? That is where the goodness of God shines forth. Do you even see it? Do you see goodness in a crucified Christ? Do you look at the Son of God who comes into the world? Are you stunned by the incarnation that God should become man? Are you stunned by that life of righteousness? Do you fall on your face when you consider the incarnate Son? Dying on the cross for a sinner like you? Do you marvel at the empty tomb? Do you gaze as it were with the disciples into the glorious cloud that receives up the risen Jesus out of your sight? Do you pierce with the eye of faith into heaven itself where you see him who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty? Do you feel it? Is it more than a notion to you? Is it more than a, a picture you gaze at on the wall, a, a, a lesson that you learn in Sunday school, a sermon that is preached in the, the gathering of the church? Can you say, taste and see that the Lord is good? God is good and he does good and he has done good to me. Do you enjoy that? It must have been hard for David. I'm forgotten like a dead man out of mind. I'm like a broken vessel. They hate me. They want me dead. I feel friendless. I'm sick in my body. I'm troubled in my soul. I'm darkened in my mind. My sin grieves me. My enemies have got some measure of power over me. What do you set against all such things? Oh, how great. Is your goodness? And do you marvel at what you cannot measure? Do you stop, perhaps especially at the darkest and deepest moments, and remind yourself of the goodness and the mercy of the Almighty God of heaven and earth, the one who delivers his people from their sins? David's awed meditation concerns the greatness of divine goodness. David's happy confidence lies in the way that God manifests or shows that goodness. He says, you've laid it up for those who fear you and you've prepared it for those who trust in you. This goodness then is treasured up for God's people. It's, it's hoarded together not so that it may be kept from them, but so that it is reserved for them. It has been held for us from all eternity. God determined from before the foundation of the world that he should bless his beloved people. It has always been God's plan and purpose to have a people who are safe, secure and happy in him to the praise of the glory of his grace. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, says the Apostle, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God for salvation through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. My friends, there's a treasure reserved in heaven for all God's people. It is there in and with Jesus Christ. We have a superabundance of all things. And whether you think of God's plan and purpose from eternity past or what we now expect and anticipate here, what we're looking forward to in the day when Jesus Christ returns, think of what you've got and remember that there is more to come. Now we have the down payment, we have the first fruits, we have the the marks and the evidences. You're, you're, You're drinking the cup, but the fountain is about to be opened. You're eating the sweet mouthfuls and the fullness of the feast has already been laid that you might sit down and eat together with Jesus Christ. God has stored up goodness for his people But it's not just somewhere out there down the line. It is also prepared for those who trust in him in the presence of the sons of men. Now the best sense of this seems to be that not that it's been prepared in the sense it's stored up and sometimes God has prepared that you'll get it at some point in the future, but rather this is the, the prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. It's been planned, it's been accomplished in perfect wisdom, in love, and is already being distributed. That's the preparation It's now being served out to us, stored up, yes, but poured out also. My friends, every moment of a believer's life is marked by love, by mercy, by divine goodness. Perhaps most especially in the moments when we find it hardest to believe that. Why do we not fade? Why do we not fail? Why are we not trampled? Why do we, though we fall, rise again? Why, though when we stumble, are we not utterly cast down? It is because of God's great goodness, laid up for those who fear him and prepared for those who trust in him in the presence of the sons of men. Mercy directs every step. Love dictates every gift. And you may cry out at times under a sense of woe, How long, O Lord, how long? You may cry out with David, have mercy on me, O Lord, I am in trouble. Your confidence is this, that in the midst of your troubles and in the midst of your distresses, the great goodness of God has been stored up for you and is now being distributed toward you. It's Matthew Henry who says it something like this, you've got goodness in the bank and goodness in the hand. You're a multimillionaire and there's pounds in your pocket too. You've got this great reservoir out of which this constant flow comes at every step and stage of your life before God. Goodness is promised and goodness has been received. Is that your confidence? Are you here this morning testifying of the greatness of the goodness of God? That that divine goodness in all its beauty and splendour, all its perfections of depth and breadth and height and length, that, that is your goodness. It's reserved for you, stored up and already being distributed towards you with every breath that you take and every step that you make. Or perhaps you're saying, well, I can see that some people enjoy God's goodness. Sometimes people will say, it's it's great that you've got your faith. It really seems to help you. You can say, you've got no idea how much I've got. If you think this is good, (laughs) you wait and see. If you think God is upholding me now, if you think my life has been transformed now, if you think I'm a different person now... If you think that some of my burdens have been lifted now, if you think that some of the the ugliness of my sin has been conquered now, if you think my life has been in any measure transformed already, boy, you just wait and see. Because this is just the beginning. This is just the start. There's more, even more stored up. And I will receive it as I go on in this life. And then, as it were, the final great gush in the day when Jesus Christ returns. When seeing him in his majesty I will enter in to his glory <coughs> Are you already eating the good things that God has prepared Are you perhaps watching someone who's begun to sit down at the blessings that God serves at the table You can see them eating and drinking with pleasure and with enjoyment You can see the strength and the mercy That it gives to them to commune with God are you anticipating for yourself not just a steady flow of God's great goodness but the final demonstration and distribution of it at the coming of Jesus Christ there's one sense in which it cannot get better than it is because we're sons of God if we're trusting in Jesus Christ God is God and our God His great goodness is fixed toward us. And there's another sense in which it can only get better because that goodness which is ours in him, treasured up for us in Christ Jesus, is and must continue to be distributed toward us until the time when all these griefs and sorrows are past and we enter at last into his glorious presence. Are you enjoying the sweet mouthfuls? And are you anticipating the splendid feast? Do you sip now the cups of cold water that your heavenly father distributes to you on the dusty and hot pilgrim road? And are you looking forward to sitting down by the rivers that flow eternally and most fully in the glory which is to come? That's what David expects. That's what David lives in the light of. That's what David's hope is his awed meditation leads to this happy confidence. How great is your goodness, which you've laid up for those who fear you and prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. The sense of that does seem to be you can see it already. It's evident for anybody who's got eyes to see. Who are David's blessed companions, though, in this? favor who gets to share these things because you see it's not just david he doesn't even say so much how great is your goodness to me but he puts himself in a certain company how great is your goodness which you have laid up for those who fear you which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. Now, these aren't two different groups of people. There are some who are afraid of God and there are some who are trusting in God. These are synonymous terms. They're different ways of speaking about the same people. Those who fear the Lord are those who trust in the Lord. Those who trust in the Lord are those who fear the Lord. And this then is not a craven fear. This is not an ugly terror this is rather describing the people who stand in awe of God's greatness and who rely on His grace. And fearing and trusting belong together in the experience of God's people. You hear the note of holy fear. How great! How marvelous, how majestic, how splendid, how great, how broad beyond comprehension, the heights and the depths. Oh God, I cannot plumb the depths of your majesty. I I see something, but it's the mere edges of your ways. There's holy fear. But how great is your goodness? There's trust. There's the mercy and the favor of God toward a needy sinner. This is a man who's taking refuge in God Most High and so enjoys his goodness. And that relationship with God does not in any way drag God down in his estimation. No, the more he sees of the majesty and the glory of the Most High, the more, like John on the, in the island of Patmos, when he saw Christ in his glory, remember the man fell on his face like a dead man because he'd seen the majesty of the Most High shining in the face of Jesus Christ. The Lord reached out and touched him. Do not be afraid. Stand on your feet. See the fear. See the trust. See the awed sense of God's holy majesty, the profound reverence with which we deal with the God of heaven and earth. And at the same time, the confidence of a child coming into the presence of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, so that you can call the creator of heaven and earth, Abba, your Father. And this goodness has been stored up for those who fear him and prepared for those who trust in him. My friends, all of them. Every single God-fearing, God-trusting person is entitled to be stunned by the greatness of God's goodness stored up for us and poured out on us. That is our birthright if we are trusting in God, putting our faith in Jesus Christ. There are no exceptions, no Christian here needs to fear in that wrong sense that maybe they're going to be missed out or moved over. God loves his people. And God will never cease to love his people. His goodness is demonstrated toward every God-fearing, God-trusting sinner. And it's demonstrated all the time. Goodness has been worked out and is waiting for us. As said, there's no step that you can take. There's no place that you can go in the service of God. There's no suffering you can pass through as a child of God. There's no experience that you can face even to the very depths of the experience of David in which you will not know the goodness of God toward you. How do we know? Because if Christ could take such language to himself and prove it true in the depths of his sufferings on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Is there anything through which you will pass where Christ will not be with you and near you and for you? We have a great high priest, do we not, says the writer to the Hebrews. He can sympathise with you in your weakness. That means, my friends, all the time. There's nothing you can pass through, nothing that you face where you'll say, I'm not sure God can help me now. I'm not sure the goodness of God can reach me here. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. Under all circumstances. It's easy sometimes, is it not, to think about the greatness of God's goodness when we're on the mountaintops? Not so easy when we're in the valleys. Easy when we're walking in the light. Harder when we're passing through the gloom. Remember again that these are not merely bad things happening. These are persecutions. These are the assaults that the righteous face in a fallen world. What is the worst that you can imagine? I know for some of you, that just to think like that starts to scare you. In the worst that you can imagine the goodness of God will not fail you. The hardest of times, the darkest of seasons, the most painful of moments, God's goodness will never fail. It is stored up, it is poured out. It is treasured for you. There is better to come and it will be distributed for you moment by moment that you may at every stage say... Taste and see that the Lord is good. Perhaps this may be what stuns us most. It's granted in the very face of our sins and failings. God does not say, when you've had a good week, I'll show you my goodness. God does not say... Only when you are doubtless and fearless in the other sense will I show you any favour. Have you not found sometimes that you pass almost through the stage of doubting and fearing to the point where you almost can't doubt and fear anymore? You've got nothing left. Out of the depths I cried to you. Sometimes you've got to go through the passage of fears and doubts to reach the point where you're just calling upon the name of the Lord. And God doesn't say, nope. "No. Now you had your chance, but you didn't trust me when you really needed me, and now I'm not going to help." How often do we botch? How often do we stumble? How many times do we try and take care of things ourselves? How often do we rest upon the strength of man? How often do we trust in human wisdom? How often do we come up with some new scheme or dream? I'll dig myself out of the hole. My friends, if, if God dealt with us the way that we perhaps are tempted to deal with one another, perhaps even if the way we're tempted to deal with ourselves, you, you, you may even be trapped in that ugly so I would never help me if I were in my situation. No, well, don't you dare impute to the good God the pettiness and the shallowness and the nastiness of your own fallen soul. God is good. His goodness is great. It is stored up and poured out on those who fear him and trust him. And it may be then that at the very moments when you are empty of self, when you are full of self-recrimination, when your guilt and your doubts are screaming in your faces, that you will have cause to testify as never before. Of God's readiness, willingness and ableness to bless you in your needs. David cries here out of the depths to God his rock and his fortress. He testifies how great is your goodness. You see, it's not to the perfect men and women, not to the self-righteous, not to the outwardly religious, not to the worthy, not to the well-deserving, but to the needy, to the frail, to the sinful, to the desperate, to those who know that God alone is their hope and their refuge, their rock and their portion. God is ready to distribute divine goodness to those who come to him. Now, do these words describe you? Are you a God-fearing, God-trusting man and woman? Do you live with something of a sense of awed reverence for the God who made you, who takes care of you? Are you trusting in him, As the God of Jesus Christ who sent his son into the world to suffer and die in our place. Are you resting under the shadow of his wings? Not how do other people think about you. But how are you in your soul in relation to God? Can you sing, oh how I fear you, gracious God, with deepest, tenderest fear. Can you sing, I am trusting you, Lord Jesus, trusting only you, and it's not just your burbling lips, it's your testifying heart. Can you say perhaps, I don't know as much as I might wish of the majesty of God. Do you know him enough to be stunned by him, to feel a sense of your obligations to him, to recognize in him the God to whom you must give an account? Perhaps you say, how can I trust him when I've sinned against him? My friends, that's why he sent a saviour. To put away your sin that you might come to him now and casting yourself upon him, be able to say with David and perhaps at the deepest and the highest point together, how great is the goodness of the God who has saved me from my sins, from death and from hell itself. Do you have the faith that lays hold upon God and his goodness? Are you fearing and trusting the God of your salvation, not just the God who saves people? What then do we carry away from this? What are David's useful lessons to us? What does this song from the depths teach us? First of all, will you turn to God with loving trust? If this God is not your God... If this goodness is not your experience, if this mercy is not bestowed upon you yet, if this Christ is not yet yours, if this hope does not yet belong to you, if this joy and peace in the midst of sorrows and struggles is strange to you, why will you keep away from God? Why would you keep trying to find resources within you or in this fallen world? Why would you keep leaning on the staff that's going to break under your weight? Why will you keep trusting false religion, empty moralism, your own strength and ability? Why will you keep boasting in your own feeble so-called strength? When the almightiness of the merciful God is held out for you now to come and call upon him. I would not wish miseries or sorrows on any man, woman or child in this place, but I would wish whatever it takes to bring you to God in fear and trust, to cast yourself upon him because there is the height of blessing. There is the pinnacle of mercy. If you have not yet turned, I plead with you, turn to a god of matchless goodness now. Throw yourself into the ocean of his love. Cast yourself upon the rock in the midst of the storms. Come to the Jesus who suffered and died on the cross in demonstration of divine goodness, that you may have him as your all in all. A second lesson to learn will you come to God with reverent awe? Will you marvel? at the God of your salvation. I think sometimes, often, we're in danger of bringing God down to our level. We diminish him. We, we, we minimise him. How great is his goodness? See, if you have small views of God, you'll have small views of the goodness of God, won't you? And then what will be your confidence in times of distress? You'll you'll doubt whether a God like that can help you now. And to be honest, a God like that probably can't. But this God can. The God of heaven and earth can. The God who made all things and sustains them by the word of his power. He is able to help and bless. The God who is in every place. The God who is out without beginning or end. The God whose power and wisdom, loving kindness, faithfulness are all on a par with his goodness, that's a God before whom we can bow. That's a God whom we can adore. That's a God before whom we can tremble with holy fear and whom we can trust with holy confidence. I would also teach you, encourage you, direct you to expect things of this God with eager hope. Do not despair. God is God and God is good. His goodness is great. And if you've really begun to taste and see that the Lord is good, there's more yet to be poured out and there's abundantly more that is still stored up. Do you expect your God to be good? Or do you fear that he's got a downer on you? Is your God a God who withholds? A God who parcels out crumbs? Or is yours the God who sends bread from heaven? Is yours the God who loves in a lavish demonstration of kindness? As you pray, as we pray over the course of these next few days and weeks and months for God to revive us again, that his people may rejoice in him, what kind of measure of goodness do you expect? Do you anticipate that a God of all goodness, the God of all grace, will pour out from heaven a flood of favour upon his hungry, thirsty, crying people? When we look at the way in which the church is held in disdain, we consider the resistance of men and women and children to the truth as it is in Jesus. What do you expect to happen when you ask God to show his goodness? Can God turn these things around? Can God give to his people the kind of spiritual vibrancy that even while it attracts the increased hatred of the world will nevertheless maintain a pure testimony in the world? You know, if God blesses us like that, it's going to be more like Psalm 31 that it is now. Because we will see the depths that come with the hatred of men. And we will see the heights that come with the love of God. My friends, it's worth going through this to be able to say how great is your goodness. Do you expect the good God to be good to his people? Do you pray with that eager hope? Do you think of this God with humble gratitude? Blessed be the Lord, for he has shown me his marvellous kindness in a strong city. For I said in my haste I am cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried out to you. Do you record the goodnesses of God? Do you testify of the goodnesses of God? Do you speak to one another of the goodnesses of God? Do you sing because that's the bit in the service we've got to or do you sing because God has been good to you? Do you marvel at the loving kindness and tender mercy of the God of your salvation? Do you stop sometimes, stand back, And ponder not just his goodness in itself, but his goodness toward this church, his goodness toward the congregation to which you belong, his goodness toward you as his beloved child. Could you begin to keep a catalogue of his goodnesses? It's 13 verses of misery. How many pages of tender favour could David record? How great is your goodness. That swallows up all the sorrow. That counterbalances all the affliction. My friends, this is what God has done for us. And we should be glad. And so, will we depend on God with joyful confidence? This cannot be and need not be a mere theory or a notion to the children of God. I may face Psalm thirty-one. 1 to 13 but I can face it in the expectation of Psalm 31 verse 19 I do not know what lies ahead for me or for you except that if you're a child of God it's full of goodness it may have much of misery not the misery of a sinner under the wrath of God but the real sadness of a child of God in a fallen world the tears that fall from your eyes because men do not keep God's law. The grief of those whom you love, who keep pressing back against the truth as it is in Jesus. The door after door that is slammed in your face. The slanders and the assaults, the disdain of the world. The attacks that are increasingly made in our society against everything that, that belongs to righteousness and truth. What have we got to look forward to? What's going to happen next? How will we stand? What will come to pass? How great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. God will have to cease being God for this to stop being true. And that's why whatever comes... Whatever thoughts may batter, whatever oppressions and distresses may fill our hearts. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. What is David's closing testimony in this psalm? O love the Lord, all you his saints, for the Lord preserves the faithful and fully repays the proud person. Be of good courage. And he shall strengthen your heart, all you who hope in the Lord. All you who know how great is his goodness, which he has laid up for those who fear him and prepared for those who trust in him in the presence of the sons of God.